0: So, I wonder if you know that getting more money doesn't necessarily make you good at managing your money. doesn't make you good with your money. I was reading this article in USA World, uh, World News and Report by economist Jay Zagorski and he talks about how studies found that instead of getting people out of financial trouble, that winning the lottery actually got people in more trouble. That they found that Bankruptcy rates in those who won the lottery uh, would soar after, for those winners after they got that money. And I know some of you have some stereotypic thinking. And so I want to tell you that the results were that it's consistent across socioeconomic levels, across educational levels, across age or race. That consistently across all these different categories of people, that people's bankruptcy rates would soar incredibly high and they would get themselves in financial trouble. Why? There were several reasons. The studies found people would go crazy in their spending, suddenly buying and uh, spending on lavish things that they would never have done before. Secondly, they would spend time and money on unwise gifts to their family and friends. Like, your grandpa does not need that Rolls Royce. They also found that without a sound financial plan that people didn't understand that they could lose up to 90% of that money to federal state or gift taxes Now I know some of us are thinking well I kind of like to have that problem like just <laughs> just to try it out you know I'd like to try that that, that suit on uh, see if it would be work for me It also turns out that the study showed that people who won the lottery experienced greater rates of isolation, depression, drug and alcohol abuse, divorce and even suicide now. What I want you to hear this morning is that it's not wrong to have money or to get money. But if you're not godly and wise with money before you become rich, you won't be after you get it. Does that make sense? And so today, what's going to happen is James is going to take out our wallets from our pockets and help us to line up our wallets with the word of God so that the two match up and are lived out together in harmony. And so if you have a Bible, turn in it to James chapter 5. We're in this series called Vibrant, where we're learning about a faith that works even when life around us doesn't. And that as we're tested by temptations and trials, that a vibrant faith perseveres by living out God's wisdom in both our perspectives, but also our practices. In other words, does my life match my beliefs? Because a relationship with Jesus cannot be compartmentalized into some areas. It needs to be integrated throughout all of them to flow from the inside outwards. And so last time we talked about how life is temporary and full of uncertainty. And so we need to hold our plans loosely to trust God's sovereignty by pursuing his priorities when it comes to our plans. And we're continuing that thought this week as James talks about instead of just living for yourself and planning for yourself, that our inward faith would flow into our outward life when it comes to our wealth. And so we're going to pick up here in James chapter 5, starting from verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And so as we start off this passage, throughout the book of James, you, you might have noticed that, He addresses the hearers, the recipients of this letter, as brothers. And actually, that's the the literary marker that separates the different sections of this this letter. So kind of a pro tip for you as you're studying the book of James, maybe on your own. Everywhere when he starts to say, my brothers, is a different section. And so he addresses, throughout this book, the followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, though, for the very first time, he turns his attention to a different audience. You rich Now, he's not talking about every person that's rich. Okay, biblically, we know that there are four categories of wealth. A lot of times we only talk about in terms of being rich or poor. But in the Bible, there's four quadrants. So you have the righteous rich, those who work hard and they're wise with their money. By God's grace, you have much and they give much. They're good stewards and they're generous to those in need. Righteous and rich. And then you have those who are righteous and poor. They're not poor because of sin. They love God. They're honest and humble and they work hard. They don't take advantage of others. They're generous when able and they still give to God in proportion to what they have. Third quadrant is the unrighteous poor. Proverbs describes that as the sluggard who won't work. Somebody who spends what they don't have. Somebody who chases daydreams and get-rich-quick schemes and then come to ruin. And... They have the same self-centered, entitled uh, attitude as the unrighteous rich. But the only difference is they're too lazy to get wealth or too foolish to keep it. And then there's the unrighteous rich. That even though you are wealthy, you still cheat. You still hoard. You don't give because the money is mine, not God's. And that's who we're dealing with here in verse 1. Those who don't follow Jesus, who's Lives are abundant with affluence, but negative with influence by dealing unfairly, unkindly, unjustly with others when it comes to money. And it says here in verse 1, the unrighteous rich will weep and howl for the miseries coming upon them. In other words, if you worship wealth instead of Jesus in this life, then you will suffer God's judgment in the life to come. Okay, Brother James, Pastor James as you're writing this letter, why are you telling the Christians about how those without faith deal with their wealth? And the purpose here is because it serves as a warning to them. For believers in Christ, that it's kind of like James is turning aside. It would be like me telling you. Uh, giving you a really, really long sermon. and Suddenly, I turn aside. There's no one here. I'm talking to this group of people, but really, I want you to hear what I have to say. And so he serves as a warning here. And what James is doing here's the big idea of the passage is that we become unrighteous with our riches, just like the unrighteous rich do when we lack an eternal perspective. That there is a day of judgment coming and that there are ramifications, eternal ones, to putting your hope and your trust and your wealth instead of Jesus. And so it's when we have more of a focus on the short-term gains and pains of this life instead of the long-term in the life to come. And so we need to stay humble before God in light of eternity because the rest is temporary. Now, what I don't want you to hear, this passage is not saying that it's wrong to be rich. What it is saying is, where is your real treasure? Do you place your faith in Jesus or in wealth. And we're going to see in the rest of this passage that there are three ways for us to self-evaluate, three ways that we tend to be unrighteous or that people tend to be unrighteous with their riches. So here's the first, verse two. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure, in the last days. So here we go with this first one. There are three common signs of wealth back in the Old Testament times, or in the, in the biblical times, I should say excess grain, garments, or gold. And so think of a, a wealthy landowner, they would have a bountiful harvest, and then they would put all the surplus into a storehouse that they have built. Secondly, they would have a closet full of fine clothes because it was considered a status symbol back then. Uh, What the rich would do is they would change their robes for various occasions throughout the day. So here here I am with my morning time clothing and then I'm going to meet with a a big wig person or a local leader and I'm changing to another outfit. And then I go to the temple and wear a different outfit throughout the day. And I know that sounds kind of silly to us, but if a person back then were transported into your life today and walked into your closet, they'd be like, you have more than one outfit? You have different clothes that you wear when you go to work? or when you, And then when you come home from work, you change into a different set of clothes when you go on a date? And you have a different set of clothes to go to the gym? You have special clothes that go when you go to bed? Oh, that's nice. They're soft. You're rich. That's what he would say to you. And so you have to think about back then it was very different. And maybe we're not so far off from the rich, those who were considered most wealthy in their society back then, We are very similar in lifestyle to them. Thirdly, most people back then lived hand to mouth from paycheck to paycheck, and only the rich were able to accumulate extra money that they could save or invest. And so in verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3, Brother James points out the problem with continuously saving and storing all this excess for yourself, that all your unused grain is starting to rot. All your unused clothes are getting chewed up by moths. All your unused gold and silver is corroding. In other words, all this stuff that seems permanent and valuable from a worldly view will completely perish and is worthless from an eternal view. Now, here's why this matters. Second half of verse 3. All this waste, all this rot is damning evidence against you in your trial where God is the judge and what the sentence will be is that you will be consumed by fire. What is he talking about there? He's talking about hell because we're continuously investing our treasures in the wrong direction instead of upwards towards heaven, actually investing in hell, even up till these last days. In other words, when he's talking about last days, what is he talking about? That's biblical words for judgment. When King Jesus returns when all of history is rolled up and all of eternity is rolled out and Jesus judges all of mankind. And the outcome is, if you are judged by what you do and what you have in your wealth, you receive eternal condemnation. Because sin separates us from God and his joy and his life forever. (coughs) But if you trust and love and follow Jesus You'll be judged by what he does at the cross, what he has, righteousness, and experience reconciliation, eternal celebration with him forever. So is this passage saying, well, don't save up any money, just give it all away. The Bible teaches us actually in many passages about money to save some, to invest some to give some, to spend some even on ourselves. So the problem here isn't saving. The problem is hoarding. Where we grab as much as you can, keep as much as you can till your storehouses and your closets and your account are bursting and rotting with excess. Unused for other people and helping without applying it to the glory of God or to the good of others because the money is mine, not God's. And so the point here is that hoarding invests in what is perishable instead of what's permanent. That you and I, we have a tendency to seek security in the things of this world, but it's perishable. When we should be considering judgment and eternity because that's permanent. And that there's this tendency to place our faith in our wealth instead of in Jesus to save us and to satisfy us. And this passage says, our stockpiles condemn us. I think about how uh, on Easter Sunday, 1976, there was a 79-year-old woman named Bertha Adams. She died alone in her home in West Palm Beach, Florida. Coroner's report, the cause was malnutrition. She had wasted away to less than 50 pounds, a full-grown adult, less than 50 pounds, because she never spent money on food. Instead, she would go door-to-door and beg for things from her neighbors. And as the preliminary investigators came to her house, they found her house to be a nightmare because she hoarded everything. Like kind of like the background picture uh, that we have up on the screen. So she would hoard all this stuff. But amidst all this clutter, the investigators found two keys to two safe deposit boxes from two different banks. And as they went and opened up those resources, the combination of stock certificates and cash totaled over $1 million. Dollars. Her hoarding was tragic because all this great wealth, it all went to waste, it all went to rot. She could have taken care of herself and many other people. And the problem wasn't that she was saving money, it's that she was worshiping it, that she held it so tightly and clung to it as an idol. And so, if I have a tendency to hoard, what's going to happen is I'm, I constantly worry about my finances and my future. Do I have enough cushion? Do I have enough stuff to enjoy for tomorrow? And I may stay up late, wondering under a pale moon where I see a lot of stars, is enough enough? And so I saw the sign and opened up my eyes that so much of my security and my comfort and my joy are invested here in things that do not last. And so I want to start off by asking you, What is that grain, garment, or gold that you hoard? Is it property? Is it your portfolio? Is it your entertainment? Is there stuff that you like to have? Stuff you like to eat? Stuff you like to wear? What are you clinging to that's perishable instead of permanent? Verse 4. Behold... The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So what's happening here is that there are times that our gain comes at someone else's expense. That as we try to be godly and wise with our money, we carefully save and carefully invest But am I being fair and just and generous to other people? And so in verse four, Pastor James wants you to imagine that you are a landowner and that you hire minimum wage workers to harvest your field. And and business is good. You have a big harvest this year, but you don't pay much and you don't pay on time. And so we want to ask ourselves, am I defrauding and depriving other people? My dealing unfairly with someone, taking advantage of those with less influence and affluence than me? Because the reality is, we're often happy to have integrity and generosity when our life and our finances are stable. But when push comes to shove, if for me to gain, someone else has to lose, well, that's just life. Second half of verse four, it says that the poor who have no avenue for redress. They have no access or excess to hire an attorney. They're powerless. And so they turn to someone more powerful, God himself. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through 15 reads, you shall not oppress your hired servant who's poor and needy, whether your brother or a foreigner. You shall give him his wages on the same day before sunset, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Deuteronomy 24. So when God hears, jumping back here to verse 4, it describes him by one of his most fearsome titles, the Lord of hosts. And the picture there in the Old Testament was of God as a great warrior, God as the commander over the heavenly hosts, over all of the angelic armies. Suddenly, That's who you're contending with. That's who you're going to war against. You face his judgment, either in this life or in the one to come. And so the point of this second section is, don't be like the unrighteous rich. Profiting off the powerless pits us against the powerful God of hosts. It means that as you make money, keep in mind, powerless people is what I'm doing, harming them, neglecting others, especially those in need. Secondly, we keep in mind the powerful God. Would he be pleased with the way that I make money and affect others? Now, I know every person in this room and watching at home, you think of yourself like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't do that. I don't harm others. Are you sure about that? Paul Piff, he's the professor at uh, UC Irvine. Uh, He did this experiment about how does money influence human relationships And he did it by uh, having a rigged game of Monopoly, where what he would do was he would ran, uh, in all these games, he would randomly assign one person in the game to have twice as much riches as the rest of the players. For example, when that player would pass Go, they get to collect double the salary of other people, okay? And as they're playing this game, every time they ran this experiment, a dramatic difference began to emerge. The person who was rich in this game, who started off rich and always got more money, would start to move around the board louder. They would smack their pieces on the board in a kind of a show of dominance. They were more likely to display signs of dominance. They would start to become ruder. They were less sensitive and more demonstrative about their material success, saying things like, well, you're just going to lose it all soon anyways. Or I could buy out this whole board right now if I wanted to. (laughs) They were demonstrably meaner the more money that they had. Now, I know it's kind of like, well, you're thinking, this is just a game, though. Mm -hmm. Professor Piff also did similar experiments with those individuals with real-life wealth. And he found that the results were identical. And so, for example, he tested people's willingness to stop for pedestrians at a crosswalk. He tested people for also playing, if they would cheat in a game, whether they would share money, a monetary gift, with a stranger, even if they would take candy from a jar that was clearly labeled for children. (laughs) And in every experiment, every single one, the higher the income was connected to meaner behavior. And so he writes, or he says, our findings were this, that as the level of wealth increased, feelings of compassion and empathy would go down, feelings of entitlement and self-interest would go up. And the conclusion of their study, in a a nutshell, was that money makes us meaner towards those with less. And I would add, particularly if you are not viewing it through the lens of eternity. And so I want to ask you again. Do you deal unfairly, unkindly, or unjustly with people who are financially dependent on you or financially influenced by you? Well, I don't... I don't own a big company, but perhaps you have people that work for you. You have people who rent your property. You have people that serve you at a restaurant or at retail. People who provide childcare or a contractor. People who need help from you. Do you use them or bless them in God's eyes? Now, you should be thinking, well, you know, maybe... I don't fit either of these categories. I don't hoard and I don't harm others. There's one more category of unrighteousness in dealing with wealth that I want you to consider. Verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 5, Pastor James lays out an accusation that you and I, we have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. So maybe you're not a hoarder. Maybe you you don't save it all for yourself, but you spend it all on yourself. You are living your best life. And so for many of us today, we don't pursue having a ton of stuff or, or just hoarding money, but we pursue experiences. I want to have the most luxurious vacations. I want to eat the most exquisite foods. I want to have the most Instagrammable adventures. Or, maybe you're not that fancy. That even if you don't live that kind of high-end life, that our lives here are often consumed by constant comfort, pleasure, ease. And so the second half of verse 5 says that as we're fattening ourselves on the high life, It's like a calf being fattened for the day of slaughter, for the day of judgment. So I want you to imagine yourself as a cow. (laughs) And you are looking at this other cow. Well, that's not fair. How come he gets to eat that greener grass over there? How come he gets to be so plump and so fat while we starve over here? Don't envy that cow because he's being fattened for the barbecue. You don't want to be that cow. Because for all who are not, who don't receive the righteousness and forgiveness of Jesus, who unrighteously worship their wealth, their fate is judgment. Well, why is it so wrong to enjoy life? No, it's not. But in verse six, look carefully here. Here's where it ties together. Brother James lays out the crime that in sinful self-indulgence, there's a tendency to neglect the needs of others. That the people who James is speaking to are surrounded by God's needy children who don't defend themselves as they're condemned to suffering and even death through the rich persons neglect, oppression, or deprivation. So they're fattening themselves up while others starve, but really they're fattening themselves up for the slaughter of judgment. So it's not just about can I enjoy life? In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 17 through 19 reads, As for the rich in this present age, I charge you not to be haughty, nor to set your hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who, listen carefully, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So you can enjoy what the riches God has provided. But it goes on to say, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And so from 1 Timothy 6, we see that you can enjoy God's rich blessing and you're called to richly share and bless others. This is really important. And I want you to be thinking about, I know that this passage really hits me hard because I'm guilty of all three in different ways. But the great thing about reading a complimentary passage like 1 Timothy chapter 6 is that we discover that the antidote to hoarding, exploiting, and indulging is giving. That as we give generously with the heart from Christ, it starts to reorient our hearts and our minds and our lives away from ourselves. It allows us to see Jesus, to become more like Jesus and bless others. Now, as I say this, this is often where many people have this horrific theological error and it turns into a prosperity gospel. That I I just give more, then, then God will give me great blessings. That we give to get a blessing. No, we give to be a blessing. We don't give more to get more. We get more to give more. And it's such a joy to give. So be generous. Another error that people often kind of think about when it comes to money is that, well, the Bible tells me give 10% and the rest is mine to do with whatever I want. No, what the Bible says is that God owns it all, Psalm 24, verse 1, and I am just the steward, the manager of God's wealth, Luke Luke chapter 16, verse 10 through 12. And so the thinking has to be, am I investing his resources according to his priorities? And what the Bible teaches us is that, yes, God provides for our needs. Yes, we can spend some to enjoy. And yes, we can save some, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. Yes, you are supposed to invest some, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, to multiply it and invest it for the future. And yes, you should leave some to, for, as an inheritance, it says, to your children's children even, not just to your own kids, but to your family to create generational wealth, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. And yes... We are also to give regularly to God, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. And also to give to the needs of others, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. Give generously. That is the antidote to our hoarding, to our exploiting, to our indulging. Now some of us, well, I don't have a lot of money. But you have a lot of stuff. of stuff. Have less. And so, you can give some away to people in need. You could sell some and give that money. But be generous. Don't be like the rich person in this passage who's collecting all this extra food, all these extra clothes that just go to rot, that just go to waste. I suspect that your fridge and your closet have a lot that you could share and give. And even though the rich person in this passage, their harvest and their business was good, but they still didn't see people or help people in need. And so, I think about... This past week, I received a text from Lori Campbell, our founder of of Bridging Grace Ministry. And and actually, the numbers I read today were inaccurate because uh, the the most recent (coughs) total is that you as a church have raised over $59,000. Or actually, I shouldn't say raised. You've given over $59,000 to the community in groceries and in home needs. And you as a church have made over 345 deliveries of groceries and supplies to the needy in this community. And and I want to recognize you as a church. You deserve acknowledgement and, and applause over that. And you may not have a lot of money, but the current greatest need is your time and your effort to perhaps help deliver to just one family per month as a demonstration of the gospel and the gift of Christ. You see, giving transforms us. It reveals to us the generosity and the grace of God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he did what? He gave. His son. His only son. And so the gift that the Father gives to us is the life, death, and resurrection, the righteousness, acceptance, and salvation of Jesus, the very Son of God. And God gave because he loved. God generously gave his best. And he calls us to give ours as well. Are you good With money. Now, I don't mean, do you have a sharp mind for the numbers? Because the issue here isn't about if you are rich or poor, but are you godly or ungodly with your money? If the goodness of God isn't evident in how you view money and how you handle money, then there's unrighteousness with our riches because we lack an eternal perspective. So I want to ask you, where are you placing your hope, and your future? What do you really worship as expressed by your time and your money? And Jesus might say to us, well, really what I have is a heart problem and that we deal with it by dealing with our wealth problem because ultimately our heart follows what we consider our wealth or our treasure. Randy Alcorn writes about it this way. Suppose that you were to buy some shares of GM, General Motors, What would happen to you? Suddenly you would develop an interest in General Motors. You would check the financial pages, even though a month ago you would have passed right over that kind of stuff. Or suppose that you were giving to help African children in recovering from AIDS. And then what you would find is that when you see an article about that, you would read every word on that subject. You're hooked on that. Or if you were sending money to churches, to plant churches in India, and an earthquake hit. You would suddenly find yourself watching the news and praying fervently for the believers and for people in India. Do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Then reallocate some, maybe even most of your money from temporal things to eternal things. I want to challenge you to put your resources and your assets, your money and your possessions, your time, your talents, your energy into things of God. And then watch what happens with your heart. Because as surely as a compass needle follows true north or follows the north, your heart will follow your treasure. And so we need to intentionally decide to not let the pleasures and treasures of this world be what saves us or fulfills us or gives us life. Because they do not last. We know that in the end, you can't take it with you. But you can send it ahead. Chapter 1, verse 10 of James, James writes to us, let the rich boast in how God has humbled us. Because if you're rich now, you are only rich for now. You can lose it all on a bad day, and you will lose it all on your last day. So better to lay up your treasures and your trust in heaven. And my challenge for you is, may we not be the rich of this passage. Instead of loving money and using people, may you use money to love people to the glory of God and the good of many. Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise for your deep love for us. We thank you that your word is very powerful and convicting. I stand here humbled, knowing that I am not shouting down any person, but that your word is speaking to me. I am that rich person who is unrighteous with wealth oftentimes. And so we come before you, Lord, and we thank you That you are starting to break some of those chains. Loosen some of the hold that wealth has on our hearts. And we know that money is not evil. That people often misquote the Bible. But it's the love of money that is the root of many kinds of evil. And so Lord, we ask that you would help us to take this idol out of our hearts. We repent of all the ways that we have Love money and worship money as an idol. And some of us, we're not like Scrooge McDuck twirling our our villainous mustaches and and swimming in, in, in a room full of gold. But the truth is, we do worship our wealth. We worship having luxurious living, comfort, security for our future, even for our children's future. And a lot of these things are good things. We recognize that, Lord. That, in fact, there are things in the Bible that commands us to save, to invest, to... Do wise things with our money, but we recognize our grip on our security and our comfort is so tight because we worship it. So, God, we come before you with an open hand. We hold our wealth and our riches to you with an open hand because it's not ours, it's yours. And we ask that you would begin redirecting our hearts and our hands, our spending, our saving, and our investing into things that matter, into things of your kingdom. That we would be generous. Not just with ourselves, not just with our families, but with a world that is crying out for justice and help. And so we bow before you this morning. God, would you grab a hold of me, grab a hold of us. Would you help us to see there are areas we need to repent of. Areas where we are hoarding, and wasting. And it's not wrong to have nice stuff or to accumulate stuff, but but we, we oftentimes are just sitting on stuff that we really will not use ever. Show us, Lord. What do we need to give instead of hoard? <clears throat> and show us, Lord, all the ways that we have exploited others, that there are times that we kind of brush off the harm or the influence that we negatively that we have towards other people in order to make a buck for ourselves or in order to save money or to cut corners. God, help us to be just in how we treat others financially. Lastly, Lord, would you help us to look at probably something that we're all guilty of, our sinful self-indulgence. Thank you, God, that you do love us and you provide richly everything for us to be able to enjoy. And yet, we turn a blind eye to the needs of people around us because we're too busy with our eyes focused on ourselves. God, thank you for the ways that you showed us. You, God of heaven and earth, are so generous and gracious that you don't even withhold your very best, your most precious treasure. You give. And so as we experience grace that we don't deserve, Would you help us to be generous and gracious towards others as well? We repent, we celebrate, we worship, and we give. We praise you all in the name of Jesus.